2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have towards Christ, through, uh, through Christ toward God, not that we ourselves, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God's word to us. Charles Darwin loved his scientific studies. As a young man, he half-heartedly decided, tried to become a, a clergyman, but he gave it up because beetles and rock formations and plants held more fascination for him than theology. At the age of 22 years old, he embarked on his famous five-year voyage on the boat, the Beagle, and his career as a naturalist was established. He spent the rest of his life intensely observing things, looking at things, reducing them to their component parts, and theorizing where they came from and why they behaved as they did. However, as the years pass by, something very sad happened to Darwin, and he records it at the end of his life in his autobiography, where he writes this. Up to the age of 30 or beyond, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Even as a schoolboy, I took delight in Shakespeare. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable and music great delight. But now, for many years, I cannot endure to read even a line of poetry. I am trying to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. 
I have almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I do retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for just grinding out general laws from large collections of facts. And this has led to the atrophy of that part of my brain on which the higher tastes depend on. The loss of these tastes has resulted in a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to my intellect and more probably to my moral character and the emotional part of my nature. Well, I listen to Darwin and they think, what a devastating loss that someone would spend so much time in a laboratory analysing facts and data that he has conditioned his mind to be able to not see the beauty that he once enjoyed. That a symphony or a sunset or a sonnet that was designed to be delighted in, Darwin couldn't see the delight in it anymore. Too much dissection of stuff had robbed him of his delight in the world. And we can learn a very valuable lesson from Darwin, I think. A lesson that we, when we condition our minds, uh, we condition our minds to whatever we watch or whatever we study or whatever we look at the most. Whatever absorbs our interest the most, whatever we give our attention to the most, it is that which shapes our thinking and trains our affections. It happens in everyday life as well, if you think about your own life. We emulate the, the sayings or the mannerisms of spouses or parents or celebrities or friends that we spend the most time with. Everything from fashion choices to the TV shows that we watch are steered by the influences that we subject ourselves to. As the, as the words of William Blake, an old poet, said, we, be, we become what we behold. In other words, what we look at the most shapes who we are. And that truth actually is right out of the Bible, of verse 18 of what we just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a biblical truth. Now, standing behind Paul's thoughts here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is the passages of Exodus 32 to 34. If we had time, we could turn there together and look at those chapters, but let me just give you a brief summary. So, in Exodus 32, in verse 5, we find that Moses is delayed from coming down the mountain of Mount Sinai, and Aaron and the people decide get restless, and they decide that they're going to make a god in the image of a golden calf. And so they collect all their gold together, and they create an idol in the form of a golden calf. And we're told in verse 5 that they look upon it, and they're looking upon it. Aaron then says to them, this is your God. And so they're, the mindless idol that they created as they look upon it makes them a kind of, it makes them mindless to God and to his mighty works of salvation in freeing them from bondage in Egypt. And the principle there is that when we fix our eyes on worldliness, when we fix our eyes on idols and sin, we dehumanize ourselves. We rob ourselves of our ability to think straight and to love well and to relate to God and to one another rightly. Then the story moves on to Exodus 33, and Moses asks, while he's up the mountain, he asks God, show me your glory, let me see your glory. And then we read later on in chapter 34, verse 29, that God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. And the result is that Moses' face, the skin of his face, shone with the reflected glory of God when he was in his presence. And the principle there 
from 32 to 34 of Exodus is that what we behold, we become like. And throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is, is emphasizing that principle as he compares and contrasts the ministry of Moses and the glory of the Old Covenant and the giving of the law at Sinai with his own ministry in the New Testament and the New Covenant and the mercy of God and the giving of the Spirit. And he's comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant to tell us that what we enjoy now in the New is far superior and more glorious than what was in the Old. Okay. Now, as we think about gathering together, despite all of the technical hitches, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, has great application for thinking about what we do when we gather and what we are as a church. For the truth that what we behold is what we become helps to set our expectations right about what happens when we gather. And it reminds us that despite all of the hitches, despite the masks, and despite the social distancing, what we're involved in as a local church week after week and the magnitude and the glory and the miracle of the privilege of it all is wonderful and we shouldn't take it for granted. So let me just walk us through verse 18 to hopefully give us a big picture of what we are doing together. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 18, in the first part of the phrase, he says, and we all. Okay, so that's in contrast to Moses, the one man who was going up the mountain to talk to God. Only Moses could go up the mountain. And he beheld God's glory, and it was so intense that his face shone with the glory of God. But it was Moses' experience alone. But now Paul says in the New Covenant, we all, all of us, all 30 of us here this morning, and everybody watching online, all of us get to experience what Moses experienced. We all get to see God in his glory. Not just Moses, not just Paul, not just apostles, not just prophets, but every single believer, every single one of us now gets the opportunity to see what Moses saw. And we do that with unveiled faces. That's the next part of the verse. Moses would have to put a veil on his face to cover the glory of God from the sinful, stiff-necked, half-hearted Israelites so that they couldn't look on the glory of God. But he, when he went into the tent of meeting to meet with God, he would take his veil off and he would talk to God as one does face-to-face -face with a friend. And he would spend time in God's presence and then he would have to cover his face again, veil his face. But Paul tells us here, going back into verse 16, that when we turn to Christ, everyone who turns to the Lord, our veil gets removed and we become little Moseses, if you like, because we get to see the glory of God. God has opened up a new and a living way for him to share the very best gift that he has with us. It's the gift of himself. So God is no longer isolated on a faraway mountaintop only to ever be visited by one man on behalf of all the people. No, all of us with unveiled faces can now draw near to God and see his glory. It's a universal and unifying experience for all of God's people. Now the glory that Moses saw, we're told in verse 6, was he saw the Lord, and it was the letter. But we're told that we have the Spirit. And then in verse 17, where the Spirit is, there is Freedom, not freedom from all constraints or restrictions to do whatever we please, but a freedom from the scrutiny and from the bondage of the strict old covenant and the law of God, which stated the demands of God upon our lives and then highlighted for 
before us the frailty of humanity in being able to fulfill those demands. So the law was given to point out our sin in every damning detail and to make us aware of our need of a saviour and also to bring us under its condemnation. But Paul says now, under the new covenant with unveiled faces, we have a liberty and a freedom that allows every single one of us to turn to the Lord, to approach God with confidence, to approach him with unveiled faces and to see him in his glory. Then that's the third part of the verse, verse 18, where it says, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. So remember Exodus 13, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, all right, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll make all my goodness pass before you, but you'll only ever see my back. That's as much as you can take. And so Moses, standing in the place of the people of the old covenant, is hidden in the rock and God passes before him and he proclaims who he is. And Moses sees the holiness and the perfection of God. Moses sees the faithfulness of God and the commitment of God to his people. Moses sees the mercy of God and the glory of God. And he sees the back of God. What Moses could not see was the face of God. But Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as he goes on to speak about the themes of glory and veils and images, that although Moses heard, my face you cannot see, Paul tells us in verse 6 of chapter 4, God has let the light shine out of the darkness and it has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what Moses could not see, you and I get to see. We see the face of Christ, and in that face is the very glory of God. John, in John chapter 1, verse 15, tells us that the Word became flesh, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. And that no one has seen the Father, but the Son has made him known to us. Then Paul would write in Colossians 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's God made visible to us. And then the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 1 verse 3 would say that Jesus is the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That when we see Jesus, we behold the face of God and we behold the glory of God. Now, beholding is much more than just a visual or intellectual thing. Beholding is looking at something and fixing our gaze on it and thinking about it and filling our minds with it and putting it, putting it before us again and again and again and being so caught up in it that it fills our attention and fills our affections and we enjoy it. It's more than seeing, it's an encounter where we apprehend and appreciate and savour and cherish Christ in all of his glory. We do that through his word and through his gospel by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the glory that we behold in Christ is most wonderfully seen in his hour of glorification, as John 12 tells us, where Jesus was lifted up on a cross and we saw the goodness of God pass before us, where we saw the holiness and the perfection of God, where we saw the faithfulness and the commitment of God towards his people, where we see the mercy and the grace of God towards sinners in nail-pierced hands and gasped words of forgiveness and love. We become what we behold. 
And beholding the glory of the face of Jesus is what we do when we gather as a church. That's why I'm so keen for us to get back together despite all of the, the struggles of uh, social distance and masks. Because what we do when we come to church is a, is a unique thing where we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Together we get to speak the gospel. We get to sing the gospel under our breaths at the moment. We get to pray the gospel. We get to testify to the gospel. We get to read the gospel. We get to rehearse the gospel. We get to touch and taste the gospel in communion. We get to preach the gospel. We get to hear the gospel. And we need that because we need to, we need to loosen the ice-cold grip of sin that has tightened around our hearts throughout the week. We need that because we need to hear that Jesus is better than the... And he's more fulfills and satisfies the, the longings of our hearts, that he's better than our sinful addictions, that he's better than the trivial time-wasting pursuits that we engage in, that he's better than the empty worldly longings that we have and all that tempts us to turn from God. We need to come together to behold the face of Jesus Christ so that we can have all of our faculties, our minds and our hearts and our very lives realigned and reorientated and recalibrated to God's ways and God's priorities and God's truth. We come together so that we might see and hear and experience the stunning love with which he's loved us. That we might see and hear and experience his forgiveness afresh for our many sins. We come together to behold the face of uh, Jesus Christ and the glory of God to be strengthened by faith for our week ahead so that we might fight the fight of faith and persevere in the battle. And we come together to behold the face of God in, uh, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to experience a foretaste of the eternal life to come that will be ours when Christ returns. We come together, Paul tells us, so that we might be transformed. And that's the final bit of our verse here in verse 18. We are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, encountering Jesus in the gospel, when we gather together as his people, we behold his glory and it changes us. We become like that which we behold. Not just in an outward way, not just in a temporary way, like Moses' face shined, but it faded and it wore off. Our transformation is inward, at a heart level, where God shines the light of his gospel into our hearts to make us more like Jesus. We, behold, we become like what we behold. That transformation is progressive, it's a process, it's a degree by degree, it's little by little, but our experience as we gather together and we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is that we increasingly, we find that his truth becomes our truth and his values become our values and his priorities become our priorities and his ways become our ways. And his thoughts become our thoughts. And his character becomes our character. His patience and humility and compassion and kindness and meekness and mercy and forbearance and love becomes ours. His life increasingly becomes our life. That's why we gather, to be eternally transformed. The word transformed literally is metamorphosis, like an ugly brown prickly caterpillar turns into a beautiful, colourful butterfly. Transformed is the same word that's used of Jesus' trans transfiguration, that he was transformed into brilliant, bright light. So when we're undergoing a transformation, that 
the idea is here that there's something heavenly going on when we gather together. When we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, there's, it's the early stirrings of the new heaven and the new earth that is arriving on this earth right now. That the future is becoming a reality. So when we gather together as God's people, it's not just engaging music, it's not just a compelling TED talk that rearranges our thinking at the kind of surface level, but God is working in each of our hearts to change us, to change the way that we see things, to change the way that we value things, to recalibrate what we live for. That's the miracle of meeting together, that we that we kind of get at home, but we get it when we're together. That God supernaturally, by his Holy Spirit, moves among his people to change us as he displays the face of Christ to us through his word. So that's why we say, do everything you can to, give, to get with God's people for the one hour of the week where we gather together before Jesus. That's why we do what we do when we gather, without apology. We haven't got just a Grace Church liturgy, or a tradition, or habit, or we lack creativity, or the technical uh, ability to do other things, although we clearly do this morning. But when we gather, we gather to do specific things, so that we can see Jesus, and behold the glory of God in his face. And we need multiple exposures through singing, and praying, and reading, and hearing, and touching, and tasting, and fellowship, and encouragement, we need multiple exposures to the sunshine of the gospel because the hard frostiness of sin and loneliness has grown in our hearts during the week. And we need that to thaw. And we need God's life and light to shine into our hearts and our lives so that we might grow and blossom and fruit and become like our Savior. So that's why we get, that's why it's so important. We behold and we become like what we behold. And as we behold Christ, we become like him together. Let's pray.